You can turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I got bad news, Brother Harold. My title of my sermon is Predestination and Election. No, it's not. No, but what we, what we do see in this, in this passage is something God laid on my heart a long time ago at a place called Lee Creek Baptist Church last year at the Preachers of Grace Conference. And I said, if I ever get a chance in all the years to preach at Preachers of Grace Conference, I'm going to preach on this. And here we are. And I'm sure that by the end of this, you'll say, it took you a year to come up with that. Well, I'm slow. But in 2 Timothy and in the first letter of Timothy, Paul is defining for Timothy what it means to be a faithful workman, what it means to be a faithful pastor, what it means to be a man. And oh, how we need this in our society and in our culture. We need these definitions. They're, they're crucial. But we need more than the ideal, and we need more than the definition. And that's our passage this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Ideals have to be proved on the field of experience and example. And in Paul's defining this, and in the Holy Spirit through Paul defining what a, a, a good and faithful man and servant is, I was reminded of what I think to be one of the greatest worldly attempts at defining what a man is. And it's a poem titled, If, by Rudyard Kipling. How many of you are familiar with the poem? Okay, I'm going to read it to you then. If, and this is by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Or watch the things you gave your life to broken 
and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And, which is more, you'll be a man, my son. Now that's a lot of non-Bible reading. And the discerning among you can pick out things that aren't biblical in that poem. But it is what I think to be one of the greatest attempts of the world with, without the Bible. To try to define what it is to be a man. There are redeeming qualities in the poem. But what it represents is the stoicism of the late 19th century. Rudyard Kipling wrote that in 1895. And what it did was that it expressed a generation and generations of people's ideals of what it is to be a man, that you are unaffected by what's around you and that you practice self-denial and sacrifice. And isn't, doesn't that all sound good? There's a problem, though. It ran into reality. It ran into practice. And it ran into practice when boys marched off to war in 1914. And this philosophy was tested as young men who stoically stood in rat-infested, lice-infested trenches and were bludgeoned to death by artillery at Verdun. It was tested as they, for king and country, went over the parapet, line after line, march after march, charge after charge, and were mowed down at the Battle of the Somme. And it was tested as they drowned in the mud of Flanders. And those that survived and saw those stoic men go through what they went through said, I don't want any more of that. And so begins a turn and a shift from defining masculinity and manhood as a stoic self-denier and to one who is rather self-indulgent and seeks self-fulfillment. You can oversimplify history, but I believe you can draw a fairly straight line from that moment to what we see today in men seeking anything that they might be fulfilled and so be a man, even if it means wearing a dress. But what we have in Scripture, what we have in the Bible, 
is a definition of masculinity, a definition of manhood, and a definition of the pastorate that passes the test of reality and practice. Because Timothy saw Paul. He saw him bludgeoned with stones. He saw him rejected. He saw him turned upon and betrayed. He saw him go through the fires, and yet he said, I want what he has. Because what he has is true. What he has is good. That comes to why I, I, I love this conference. It's because we have more than ideals. You see, I, I, can, I can be crushed by the ideals of the pastor. The accuser of the brethren is no stranger to my study. Phrase, how dare you, as I read the pages of Scripture and know that I've got to preach it, are all too familiar. But here, what I've been introduced to is not only the ideals, but godly examples, flesh and blood given to those ideals. And that truth, tested in the fires of church splits, of betrayals and hardships and poverty and obscurity, and yet proven to be true and right and good. And so this morning, and I know it's before lunch, and it's a position I'm used to. Let's look how we can be better examples. Because we know God uses them. He used it in the life of Timothy. After spending much time talking about the ideals and giving negative examples of what it doesn't look like to be a man of God, a good pastor, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching. What example do we have in Paul's teaching? Well, the first thing that I, I notice is the, is the sheer breadth of doctrine that Paul gives us. I believe it was Martin Luther that said, if, if all the Bible was lost but the book of Romans, Christianity still stands. And yet we have so much more in, in Paul's teaching and the breadth of doctrine that he covered. He didn't have a hobby horse. You may read Galatians and think, oh, okay, well, Paul's the circumcision guy, Right? But then you go to his other letters, and he's not addressing that there because he, he covers the, the full counsel. But not only that, his teaching was specific. Look at the very nature of how the Holy Spirit chose to preserve his word through Paul. You go to anything Paul wrote, and you're going to find a phrase in it, and it's going to say, to the Romans to the Corinthians, to the Philippians. Paul, by his example, did not fall into the trap of preaching to everyone in general, but no one in particular. And you, you can see how God uses it. Don't preach to everyone in general and ignore the flock that God has given you and that's sitting right in front of you. That's too easy. That's the coward's way out. 
Stand up. Be a man like Paul and tell them what they need to hear. How many people in your church that are members of your church are struggling with transgenderism or homosexuality? Is that reflected in the amount of time that you spend confronting it in the pulpit? We have to confront those things. We, we tear down those lofty ideals and worldly philosophies. But it's not a success story if you have a church filled with slothful, lazy, gossiping, gluttonous, non-dress-wearing men. You've got to stand up and preach to your people. Don't worry about the online reception. That's what Paul did. Don't make your pulpit an extension of your Twitter feed. Also, in the example of Paul, we have someone of monumental intellect and education. And yet in 1 Corinthians 3.2, we have an example of a man who gave milk to those who needed milk. Preach in a way they can understand. And push them to grow. Because he did feed them milk, and he did preach in a way they understand. And Peter also did say, Paul's kind of up there. He's hard to understand sometimes. He did both. Look at this example. It's tested. You may think, oh, I can't, I can't be too specific because then if the, if the sermon gets out, then it may not be applicable to everyone. Paul wrote these letters to individuals. I'm not Timothy. But God uses the letter Paul wrote to Timothy. Preach to your people like Paul did. It stood the test of time, I would say. And if you do this, I want to be like you. And that's the title of the sermon that came into my mind last year. I want to be like you. That's why I like being here. Because I've found men that are serving the Lord with gladness, who are real, and examples that I want to follow. And if you teach this way, I want to be like you. We continue, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct. And you may say, oh, well, that's, a, that's one. You just, you just get to cherry pick whatever you want. What's the matter? You don't like cherries? No, I'm going to let Paul cherry pick in Acts chapter 20. He's going to go over his ministry with the Ephesians and mention his conduct among them. And so we'll let him say what his conduct is. Acts chapter 20. Second part of verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with 
trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how the Holy Spirit works. The first thing I mentioned, I was going to mention about Paul's conduct is he mentions humility. Both Brother Russell and Brother Lonnie brought this out in their sermons. And how easy it is to forget, as you may be conversing with John Owen, John Bunyan. What a vile, wretched sinner you were when he found you. We serve our people humbly. Not only that, I see Paul going house to house while he was there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What's, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm having Apostle Paul over. He's coming, coming to teach in my living room. If the Apostle Paul laid out this example, Pastor, are you too good for it? Do they have to come to your ivory tower to get a conversation? Or I'll ask you this. The families in your church, what do their living rooms look like? Do they have to be in the hospital to get a visit from you? Paul taught them house to house. Because he loved them. And I'm not just talking about your buddies or those who have land you can hunt on. <laughs> Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, he calls them to repent. Oh, man, it's easy. I could get up in front of my church family, and I could scream and rail against skinny jeans and homosexuals all day long. And not one person would be convicted. He called them to repent. But once again, look, you're called to minister to your people. Call them to repent. They need a shepherd. They need to know where they're erring. They need to know where they need change. And this requires someone to know them. And that requires being in their house and knowing their personal lives and what's going on in their families and in their households. And then you can stand up and exposit the scripture and call them to repent, like Paul did. In verse 27, he preached the full counsel. In verse 31, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Night or day. You know, the pastor doesn't have a doesn't have a stop a clock that we can clock out in. 
Doesn't have a punch card. And I'll tell you, my father's a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor for 64 years before he passed away. And so I've got a little perspective on what the pastorate's like and some trends that are going on. And I can tell you that my grandfather and his generation took this truth too far. And always being available and always dropping everything for any, anything that the church might need at the hospital for every ingrown toenail. But I don't think that's the danger among the modern pastorate. I think that we've responded too far. And we have a lot of sheep that need ministering to. A lot of pastors that neglect them in the name of being faithful to their family. You have to be balanced. You have to, you have to put first things first. But Paul was there night and day. He didn't say call back during my office hours. And lastly, for conduct, he did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul gave us an example of a man who cared. A man who cared about the response of the people to the message that he preached. And you know, that's hard, as Brother Lonnie mentioned. That's hard over a series of years. It's hard to keep caring as people ignore what you have to say, what you preach from the Word. And so we know that we preach to the glory of God and the results are up to him. This is true. But do not also do not forget that God is also glorified in your caring about how the people respond. God's making his appeal through you and God is not indifferent. Jesus can stand before wicked Jerusalem and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where are your tears for your people? Do you care? Paul did. And if you conduct yourself as a humble brother, preaching the gospel and caring for those that God's called you to, I want to be like you. Continuing in 2 Timothy. You have, however, you however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says his aim is to please God. Or in this very letter, in chapter 2, Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There are three dangers here for us, and we can follow the example of Paul. We don't aim to please ourselves. And 
I will do and I will preach what I enjoy, and I will delegate the rest. The calling of shepherd is a full calling. Preaching is central, but it's not solitary in our duties. We don't only do what we enjoy naturally in order to please ourselves. We don't only preach what we enjoy. We preach the full counsel. Another danger is to seek to please, aim to please other pastors. To rather than having your people in mind and and ultimately, your aim being to please the God of heaven, you can work to write a sermon that would awe Martin Lloyd-Jones in its thoroughness, or tempt Spurgeon to plagiarize your illustrations, or cause Jonathan Edwards to blush at your harshness. Never seeking to please the God of heaven. Or you can think of what you, what you do and how you lead your sheep. I, we did VBS a few weeks ago. There are, there are pastors that, that hate VBS. And there are some pastors that kind of say it in secret, like, yeah, we did a VBS, you know. And if my aim was to please those pastors, we would have written VBS off. And I said, that's old, that's useless, we're not going to do it. But I didn't, because I felt that God would use it in the life of our church family, and he did. And guess what? When you're doing a VBS, you don't have to do an altar call and manipulate a bunch of five and six-year-olds to raise their hand. You can just teach them the word of God and be a good example for them. We aim to please the God of heaven. We don't aim to please our congregation. Did you'd keep everything short, sweet, and non-confrontational. If you do this, I want to be like you. teaching, his conduct, his aim. And lastly, we'll do a faith. And Paul, <clears throat> we see a man convinced of the word that he has heard and who he's heard it from. And I know this because he told it to Timothy in chapter 1. He was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher in verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Timothy had in Paul an example of a man who clinged to the word of God and he was convinced of its truthfulness until the very end. And he couldn't deny it no matter where he was or who he was around. I think about that moment where the crowd in Jerusalem is coming after him and he begins to speak to them in Hebrew. And it quietens them. He's speaking to them in their language. And if there was ever an opportunity for Paul to compromise, to mollycoddle, apologize falsely. There it was. He had him. What did he do? 
kept his faith in what he had been told. That the gospel is to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Includes the Gentiles. And I don't care if every Jew in Jerusalem hates it. That's what God said. There will be times you don't know how you're going to get out of this or if. There will be times you don't know why you are suffering. But cling to the truth, to the word. And be convinced so that with Paul, you can... Say at the end of your days, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And I've kept the faith. My arrogance, I thought we'd get through all those things that Paul mentioned. (laughs) Not even close. But I'll tell you, the truth presented in Scripture stands the test of experience unlike worldly philosophy know it cling to it and if you do I want to be like you so I'm going to summarize it in this way then I'll be done brother Harold If you walk in a manner I can follow and still be walking after Christ the Lord, if you feed his sheep doctrine they can swallow while preaching the full counsel of his word, if your conduct is that of humble brother, sowing your gospel seeds among your own, without in secret wishing for another better family, that is already grown. If your aim is to please the God of ages, not the will of even those you hold dear, if your faith keeps you clinging to the pages of the book that you preach from year to year, if you can bear your burdens with all gladness, still patient when the insults fan the flame not giving into anger in the sadness or waste your time fighting for your own name. If you can love those who have left you hurting without losing your tenderness and trust, if you can face your trials without deserting, though every feeling in you says you must, if you can believe the Lord when he tells you the world will persecute all godly men and still preach as the love of Christ compels you and ask him to forgive them of their sin. If you can watch the years you're given leave you and know the time you spent was not lost, if neither pain nor stormy trials grieve you because each day you rise, you count the cost. If you can run the race that's set before you with everything that's in you for the prize, then a pastor you'll be 
And can it be true? A faithful servant in your father's eyes. And I want to be like you. Father, I thank you for the godly example that you've given us. And I thank you that your truth stands the flame of experience and trial and pain. And has proven to be your very living word. And Lord, I ask that you would use us in one another's lives to dig us out from under the crushing weight of idealism and be an example to one another so that we can see your truth lived in flesh and blood and be encouraged and be strengthened. I thank you for everyone in this room and the example that they are to me. And I pray that we would be so in increasing measure to one another until your son returns or you call us home. In Jesus' name.